pray that you bless this time together. Open our hearts and our minds to receive your word, to understand the lives of people who have gone before us and how we can learn from them so that we can further love you and our neighbor more. Lord, we continue to pray for the church. Lord, we pray for peace in the church. We pray that you give those involved in navigating this situation wisdom and allow all things to be done for your glory. Lord, we know and rest that all our, our times are in your hands. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have given us in your Son. Bless our time now, we pray in his name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to start off with a little bit of review. Does, everyone, does anyone remember what the title of the lesson number one was? The present emergency, that's right. And one of the key questions in that lesson was, what was the church needed to do since this beginning? What has the church needed to do since this beginning? There was one key quote from that lesson. I don't know if anyone remembers it. But a man named Alan McRae, he said this in, re- in, re- in reference to Machen. He said, all through the history of the church, there's been what? A ceaseless struggle to maintain, can anyone remember? Truth. Very good, Elizabeth. To maintain truth. All through the history of the church, there's been a ceaseless struggle to maintain the truth. So that's why we're studying this man and what he did, because we're in that same struggle, aren't we? There's a struggle for truth in our time. There'll be a struggle for truth in our children's time. Until the Lord returns, there's always going to be a struggle for truth. This reality is clearly seen in the New Testament, in the ministries of such as men, such as the Apostle Paul. How did Paul struggle with truth? Anyone recall anything? Did he struggle? Can anyone recall? Can anyone recall any specific instances? Well, generally speaking, right, you can talk about his, his letters, right, his entire corpus of letters written to the church. He was struggling with truth, right? But more specifically, he even, he even struggled with truth with other apostles, didn't he? Can anyone recall, recall that? Was that wrong? Yes. Right. Right. Yes, very good. Jude declared that we must contend for the faith that was once delivered for all the saints. Verse 3. So the second question there, what are some examples from church history that support Alan McRae's statement about what the church has needed to do since its beginning? We talked about some during the New Testament area. Anything else come to mind? Right, that's an excellent example. Thank you, Joseph. Yep. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. That's an, that's another great example. Those are really the, the two main examples that I was going to talk about. The ecumenical creeds of the church were formulated to defend the church against heresy. The Nicene and Chalcedonian creeds are examples of this phenomenon. And then we have the great confessions that were born out of the Protestant Reformation also sought to maintain biblical truth. So last review question there, how might studying Machen's life and his work 
with, uh, in his work, Christianity and Liberalism, be helpful for us today? Well, as we talked about, his first radio message, these, are, these were a series of radio messages that, that were born into his book. But the first radio title was The Present Emergency and How to Meet It. So, like, so as we talked about, no matter what time we find ourselves in, there will always be a present emergency. Right? So studying Machen and his work can therefore give us perspective on our own emergencies and wisdom on how to answer them. The, constant, the consistent message of his life can help us to keep our eyes on the things that are ultimate. Okay, so moving into our lesson today, introduction. Alongside the remarkable book, Christianity and Liberalism, is a remarkable life. The life of J. Gresham Machen twists and turns from a man who doesn't know who, what to do with his life to a man who would ultimately spend it in defending the Christian faith. In this lesson, Dr. Nichols divides Machen's life into four sections. And here we're going to explore the first two, Foundations and Princeton One, describing Machen's well-to-do background in his journey toward Christian ministry. So what are our goals from this lesson? To describe Machen's family life, early education, and college experience, summarize Machen's mentality and initial experience at Princeton Theological Seminary, and explain the theological environment of the early 20th century. So before we get into the video, any other thoughts or questions before we hit play? So generally speaking, when we are studying biography, uh, what are some things we need to be cautious about? Yeah, exactly, Joseph. What's that called? It is biased. But <laughs> there, there's a word for that type of biography. It's called hagiography, right? Okay? It's when we look at a person's life and we're going to idealize it. And we're going to look over the blemishes. Okay? Um, ha- hagiography. H-A-G-I-O-G-R-A-P-H-Y. So, when we're studying the life of any person, right, is there a risk to doing that, to idealizing them so much? Right. I mean, I mean, there's really, it's always a risk, right? Because Why is that? Yes, the... Yeah, the truth may not prevail. What is more fundamental reason? When we're studying people, I mean, what, what are we all? Sinners, that's exactly right. We all are sinners, right? And no matter how good we look in a certain light, we all sin, okay? There's only one person's life that, that we're going to be able to look back on and say he was perfect, and that's the God-man, Jesus Christ. Other than that, anyone who we study throughout history is going to have their blemishes, whether we see them or don't see them or whether other people talk about them or not. So as we're studying J. Gresham Machen, I mean, this is, I don't think the videos actually go into this, or this study does, but are there any things that we need to be cautious about? Does anyone know of anything, have heard anything about Machen that maybe were some of his potential blemishes? (laughs) 
Yes. Yes. He didn't, he didn't write about it publicly, but in some of his private letters written to his mom, um, during um, when he was at Princeton Theological Seminary, Warfield was trying to um, integrate uh, black students into the seminary, and he wrote to his mom that he was against that. So just, just a word of caution. But it's not going to be different when you study any person throughout history other than Jesus Christ. Everyone is going to have their sin. Is there any, other, any thoughts or questions about that? That's a great example. So we have many heroes of these uh, of the faith, right, that are in, mentioned in Hebrews 13. We look back in the pages of the Bible, some of the things they did are not so godly, right? But what is the fundamental reason why they're in Hebrews 13? Because of their faith, right? It's not because God looked at their life and he deemed their life more godly than someone else's life. It is because of faith, right? Any other thoughts or questions? Okay, so there are some questions here during the video that if you'd like to try to um, pay attention, answer those, we'll try to go through those after the video, and then we'll, um, we'll progress, but we'll go ahead and get started now. Okay. I just want to know that Phil or not that he skipped class to go to football. <laughs> He loved hot chocolate. He would write to his mom and he would just talk about how wonderful hot chocolate was. <laughs> okay, so let's go through some of these questions. What were the professions of Mason's father and maternal, maternal, paternal grandfathers? Machen's father supported himself through law school at Harvard by writing detective stories and was also a lawyer. So what books influenced Machen as a young man, and how does this connect to his major as an undergrad? Was it a Greek and Latin classics? Yes. They still sell books. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> I'm super excited. That would be so fun. That, that's a real page turn there. Yes. Okay. Spark crack on the Kindle. <laughs> <laughs> Bill's 
Yes, thank you, Patrick. Very good. Why was Machen initially reluctant to embrace the idea of seminary? In this sense, seminary was the last thing on his mind, but his pastor encouraged him that he could go to seminary and become a scholar instead, even attending university while at seminary. So Princeton won 1902 to 1918. What degrees did Machen earn while at Princeton? Philosophy and his equivalent to an MDiv. Yes, very good. What type of student was Mage in Princeton at Princeton initially? Joseph, you want to take that one? Yeah, uh, he was growing up, so he didn't need to work hard, and he loved Princeton football, which since this is early 1900s, Princeton was actually decent at football then. Okay. <laughs> uh, so he did with this class to go to football games. Very good. I also added that he was a jokester. Yes, that's right. So when he was writing later in his life, his autobiography, he reflected back on this time at Princeton. What did he say he was doing at that time? Playing games, exactly, yes. So after Germany, what did Machen return to Princeton to do? What was the next role of Princeton? And what event in Trump made his life at Princeton during the season? He was a lecturer. Yes, very good. He did not immediately pursue ordination, but he would eventually become ordained and serve as the assistant professor of New Testament for the seminary in 1915. And the event which interrupted Machen's life was what? World War I. World War I, yes. And how did he, what, what role did he take in World War I? He made hot chocolate. Yeah, he made hot chocolate for the soldiers, right. He was with the YMCA, provided social services for the soldiers. So now moving on to the after the video questions. In what ways is Machen's uncertainty about what to do with his life seen in his years after college? <clears throat> I mean, I think he uh, just kind of, at least from that small bit, kind of went where the wind blew. You know, and even thinking about the war, that give anybody purpose, you know, direction, uh, which I think he was searching for, and so that seems like a natural way to at least have that for a time. Yes, very good man. Also, the year they went abroad, he didn't want to uh, tie down to any one specific thing to do. Yes. He wanted to be free to go do things that he wanted to, to do. Very good, Keith. And what is, what, the, what is one of those things he, he learned to love at, during his time? They really like to do. Hiking. Hiking. In the Alps. <coughs> oh, the love of the Alps. Very good. So how is Machen's brilliance seen throughout his academic career from Johns Hopkins to Princeton? Well, he was valedictorian of his class at Johns Hopkins. A good <clears throat> so he would go on to attend, and we talked about this, attend both Princeton University and Princeton Theological Seminary, earning degrees from both institutions simultaneously. 
So while studying at Princeton, he was able to do well, <coughs> even with a divided focus. As a senior, however, he wrote a paper that earned him a full year of graduate study abroad in Germany. So what type of thinking did Machen encounter while in Germany, and what did it attempt to undermine and how? German higher critical thinking, which undermined mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, which undermined the inspiration of scripture. Very good one. What about the New Testament? Okay, well, let's go on to the review questions. So where was Machen born? Baltimore? Yes. The Gresham family, Machen's maternal side, had deep ties in Georgia. Machen's mother was from Macon, and his grandfather even served as president of the Board of Trustees of the University of Georgia. Machen, however, was born in Baltimore. So who wrote detective stories of financial support through school? answer is D, Machen's father. Arthur Webster Machen, Machen's father, determined to support himself through law school, and he did so by writing detective novels. Machen's mother, Mary, was also a published author, having written a work on the poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning in the Bible. Question three, which U.S. president did Machen often dine with? Woodrow Wilson. Very good, Woodrow Wilson. C. Question four, which profession made seminary sound like a strange choice for Machen? Say that again. Which profession made seminary sound like a strange choice for Machen? Banker, lawyer, pastor, or scholar? Pastor, good Paul. Machen had no desire to become a lawyer or a banker, which is one of the reasons that his pastor suggested seminary. But Machen thought of seminary only in terms of becoming a pastor which also did not appeal to him. The thought of becoming a scholar, however, did ultimately appeal to him. Question five. Machen served as army chaplain in World War I. True or false? False. False. Though Machen initially considered serving as a chaplain, he understood that chaplaincy would somewhat remove him from the troops. To be closer to the troops, 
He served with the YMCA, providing various social services on the front lines. Question six. What distinction were the German theologians of Machen's Day attempting to make? The answers are the distinction between different authorial strands of the Pentateuch, the distinction between biblical inerrancy and biblical infallibility, C, the distinction between the Jesus of history and the Jesus of faith, and D, the distinction between logical and temporal priority and soteriology. Was that, I mean, this is kind of out of the, I'm somewhat familiar with that line of uh, reasoning at the time, but what was the archaeological or scientific theory that was backed up in that position? Sorry, what was the question? For the, for the German scholars that he observed to take those kind of positions that would undermine the, the authorship um, of the Old Testament, what would have been their scientific or their theoretical argument that would, what, what, what yes. evidence were they describing, new evidence were they claiming to build together? Yeah, so I'm understanding your question. So one of the theories was called the JEDP theory, right? Okay, they're looking at the Pentateuch and they're saying, okay, this is not one author. There are actually four different authors that contributed to this. And one of them was, a, the P was the priestly author. And I, I forget the, what the other one stood for. And if anyone knows more about this, please speak to it. But basically, they go through the Pentateuch and they'll go through the book of Genesis and they'll say, they'll see a section of maybe genealogies and then they'll see a section of narrative. And they'll see these things as kind of pieced together. They'll say, this is not a free flow of thought here. This is not one person's thinking. These are insertions and additions that are kind of pasted together. Um, so that, that's kind of an overview. I don't know if that, that's helpful, but um, there are more distinct um, positions for each one of those, the JEDP specifics that were looked at in the Pentateuch, which I'm not familiar with off the top of my head, but the, that's the general thrust of it, is that it was just kind of pieced together. The answer, is C. the answer is C. The distinction between the Jesus of history and the Jesus of faith. Hmm. Okay. Any other questions about Machen and what we, we studied? Any other comments? Anything you would like, anyone would like to share? But what you were just describing, was that not A? Is it both? <laughs> And I think there could probably be a two Elizabeth as well, because they're basically the, the JEDP theory says that there's not just one author. There's different authorial strands in the Pentateuch. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a trick question. It's a trick it's a double answer. answer. Well, let's see what the tricky, tricky. Is. Always shoot a C. Any other thoughts or questions? Okay, so we studied, we studied a, a biography for a little bit. I think it was very helpful to do that. But I thought since we just have a few minutes left, we might spend a little time in devotion. So I don't know, have any of you spent time reading Spurgeon's morning and evening daily readings? Joseph, you have? So are you doing it currently or have you done it in the past? Okay. So I, I try to do it. I'm kind of doing that currently. And yesterday's reading I thought was very good. So I... I Put that on the next page, and we're just going to go ahead and read that. And this is based on Ephesians 1.6. Um, 
In his book, it's called Accepted in the Beloved. But I've, I've actually, this is from the ESV that I have pasted there. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. In verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Blessed us in the beloved. So here's Spurgeon's thoughts on that verse. So what a strange privilege. It includes our justification before God, but the term acceptance in the Greek means more than that. It signifies that we are the objects of divine complacence, nay, even of divine delight. How marvelous that we, worms, mortals, sinners, should be the objects of the divine love, but it's only in the beloved. Some Christians seem to be accepted in their own experience. At least, that is their apprehension. When their spirit is lively, their hope is bright, they think that God accepts them. But they feel so high, so heavenly minded, so drawn above the earth. But when their souls cleave to the dust, they are the victims of fear that they are no longer accepted. If they could see, but all their high joys do not exalt them. All their low despondencies do not really depress them in the Father's sight, but that they stand accepted in one who never alters, in one who is always the beloved of God, always perfect, always without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, how much happier they would be and how much more they would honor the Savior. Rejoice then, believer, in this. Thou art accepted in the beloved. Thou lookest within and thou says, there is nothing acceptable here. But look at Christ and see if there's not everything acceptable there. Thy sins trouble thee, but God has cast thy sins behind his back, and thou art accepted in the righteous one. Thou hast to fight with corruption and the powers of evil. The devil tempts thee. Be of good cheer. He cannot destroy thee, for thou art accepted in him who has broken Satan's head. Now by full assurance thy glorious standing. Even glorified souls are not more accepted than thou art. They are only accepted in heaven in the beloved, and thou art even now accepted in Christ after the same manner. So has anyone had a tough week? Anyone struggling? Various things? I'm sure everyone in this room is struggling in some way or the other. Maybe with medical issues, maybe with sin issues, whatever it may be. We all have to fight corruption and the rest of temptation. But this reminds us that we are already accepted in him who has overcome the powers of evil. Any thoughts or questions about that? Or comments? Okay, so the last thing we're going to do is going to close in a song. I have included the lyrics on the last page there. It's called Lord from Sorrows Deep I Call. I think it complements the prayer we just read very well. Um, it's based on Psalm 42. <laughs>